in these next few weeks leading up to Christmas, we're going to be looking at Mary, but not particularly at Mary, but how Mary points us to Christ. And so this is the first passage in Luke that introduces us to Mary the Virgin. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38, please give your attention to God's word. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Well, it is the season for Christmas music, and I love Christmas music. I look forward to this one month a year to listen to these very familiar songs that have, I've emotionally bonded with over many years. Except these days, instead of digging out my dusty old Christmas records out of the closet, now I go to that playlist in iTunes and download them to my iPhone, which is not quite the same warm feeling of pulling out the Christmas music as it used to be. But there is one advantage to the new technology, and that's the fact that I can easily delete songs on those albums that I don't like. (laughs) And there's one song that sometimes shows up on Christmas albums that I always delete. Ave Maria. The music to Ave Maria is beautiful, and some of the greatest singers in the history of the world have sung the song. But if you've never bothered to look up the English translation that Ave Maria is based, the Latin of Ave Maria is based upon, it's basically a version, or it's based upon the Catholic prayer that they use with the rosary, which goes like this. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and in the hour of our death. Amen. As beautiful as the song may be, I have some serious theological problems with those lyrics. With that view of Mary, which I think is developed as a distortion of what the scriptures teach us about this woman of faith. Mary, full of grace. We Protestants don't use that phrase. But it's interesting where that comes from. It comes from the original Latin translation of the the New Testament, what's called the Vulgate. In the Vulgate, that's 
the Latin, literally the Latin translation, calls, it says Mary, full of grace. It's verse 28, where Gabriel greets Mary and says, greetings, there the English translation is, O favored one. And the way that that's understood is radically different. We understand it that way. Oh, Mary, you are the favored one. Whereas others take it as Mary, full of grace. The whole view of Mary over the history of the church has been kind of an interesting thing if you could go back through the annals of church history and see how it developed. Back in 431 AD, the Council of Ephesus, one of the great early councils of the church, they used a word, a title, they applied a title to Mary that got very much understood, misunderstood later. It's called Theotokos. That was the title. It's a Greek word, the title they gave to Mary. And it means, literally, translated from the Greek, it means God-bearer. Or, as that Catholic prayer states, it, mother of God. But what's interesting is that that council, if you read the context of that title used for Mary in that council's writings, you find out that they weren't trying to make any statement about Mary whatsoever. They were making a statement. They actually were refuting heresies about the very nature of Christ. That's why they gave her that title. That she was not the mother of a normal human being like in me, you and me. She was the mother of the Son of God. It was really a statement about Christ. Well, over time, this Mary full of grace, this Mary mother of God, be, became seen as someone to, as they use the term, venerate. But too often, the word venerate actually, in practical sense, devolves into worship. She became someone to pray to. As people pray to saints, she was considered, in many ways, the greatest of all saints, so therefore she became the primary person to pray to if you weren't praying to God the Father or, God, or Jesus his Son. And then she became seen as someone who dispenses grace. Mary, full of grace, meant that she was one you could go to as a source of grace. And some even got to the point of calling her a co-redemptrix. In other words, she participated in providing redemption for us along with her son, Jesus. So you can see how this view of Mary has gotten distorted and more idolatrous over time. The idea that we would pray to her and expect to receive grace from her is against the gospel. But the words that Gabriel spoke to her were not trying to say that she was a source of grace in any way. It meant that she was a recipient of grace, not a source of grace. That's why the English translation in the ESV here is, O favored one, O one who has received great grace, is what he was saying. Very similar, matter of fact, I would say it's almost identical to what was said about Noah in Genesis 9 when he was chosen among all the sinners in the world to play a unique and crucial role in the plan of redemption of God saving his people. And it said in the text, Noah found favor in the eyes of God. Noah received great grace from God to be used of God as a sinner like you and me to be used of God in such a way to help bring about his plan of redemption for his people. I like Martin Luther's paraphrase of what Gabriel says to Mary here. In his paraphrase, he says, it should say, Oh, Mary, you are blessed. You have a gracious God. No woman has ever lived on earth to whom God has shown such, such great grace. That's what the angel was saying to Mary. 
Or as one commentator put it, the hero of the virgin birth isn't Mary, it's God. But Mary did receive great grace. And she had a unique calling from God to serve a role in the carrying out of the plan of redemption. Not to contribute to our redemption, but to be used of God to provide redemption. And that is in giving us the humanity of Christ. She became a receptacle for the work of the Spirit to create the human nature of Christ, which is one of the great mysteries, and yet one of the central truths of the gospel by which we are saved. In Galatians chapter 4, Paul puts it this way, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. It was essential that his Son, his eternal Son, equal with the Father in substance and in eternity, be born of a woman in order for you and I to know God and to live forever. It was essential. You see, this was a huge issue in the early church. The world was very different back in the, in the time of the early church. In the old Roman Greek culture, had a very low view of the human body, had a very low view of the material universe. In Greek philosophy, Good meant spirit. Bad meant flesh and material. And so the idea that God who is a spirit, you know, they had no problem with God or their gods always being intermingling and interacting and interfering in the affairs of men. They had no trouble with that. They, they believed in the supernatural. They just were totally offended by the idea that God would in any way dirty his hands by being involved with our flesh or the material world. It was something that was evil that we were to be delivered from and it's interesting, it's the other way around today. People have no problem believing that Jesus is human, but they have a huge problem believing that he is the eternal son of God. But it was so important in the early church that even by the end of the New Testament, in 1 John chapter 4, listen to what he says. The apostle John says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. It was that huge of an issue that the eternal Son of God had taken human flesh and added it to his divine nature. That was so central to the gospel that everything else was a false gospel and was of the spirit of the Antichrist. So I want to take a few moments this morning as we look at this calling that the Lord gave to Mary to look at the importance of the role that she played, not in anything she did, but being an empty vessel for the grace of God to be poured into her, the very presence of God in a unique way to be poured into her. And so the first truth that we get from this encounter is that Jesus, the Messiah, the eternal Son of God, had a human birth just like yours and mine. We see these two natures of Christ, the divine and the human, spoken of here in this account. Look at verse 35. It says, the angel answered her. She said, how is this ever going to happen? I'm a virgin. I've never been with a man. And the angel says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. There is incredible mystery in those words. The Holy Spirit would come upon her, would overshadow her in a very mysterious way and somehow create a human nature, a human life within her womb by miraculous means. 
And the word overshadow is the same, it's comparable to the word that you have in the Old Testament Hebrew for what the Spirit did at the, at the, at the beginning of creation. How the Spirit hovered over the waters. He overshadowed the waters as he participated with the eternal Son of God in creating all that there is. And so what happened in Mary's womb was a special act of creation of the Holy Spirit. A miraculous establishment of a human nature which would be combined with the eternal divine nature of the second person of the Trinity. The fulfillment of this prophecy, of course, is recorded over in Matthew 1, where it says his mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. And this was a key fulfillment of one of the most important prophecies in the Old Testament. The sign to look for that the Messiah had come was this prophecy given to Isaiah in chapter 7. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. That God would come to us through the birth of a child and that birth being given by a virgin. I just want us, I know this is familiar territory for almost all of us here, but I just want us, if we're going to celebrate Christmas, You've got to do it in awe of what happened in the womb of this Virgin Mary. Even though you can't even begin to understand it. The miraculous virgin birth is a mystery, but it points to three things that we can and must know in order to be saved. That first of all, Jesus was born fully human. Secondly, that he was not only human, that he was also the eternal Son of God. And thirdly, that he was born without sin. I'm not going to, I don't have time, nor I don't really want to get into the details of how sin is transmitted from Adam down to us. We know that the scriptures teach that because Adam sinned, we are born sinners, and that sin nature is a result of Adam's sin. I'm not going to, a lot of theologians have lost a lot of hair and time trying to figure out how that transmission has happened down through the ages. But the one thing that the virgin birth screams to us is that he did not inherit that sinful nature from Adam that he was born fully human, he was much more than human, and that he was born without sin. That's what the virgin birth teaches us. His birth was a full human birth, although unique. Secondly, Jesus experienced human development just like you and me. In Luke chapter 2, it talks about Jesus' childhood. The Bible tells us almost nothing about his childhood. But All that we know comes from chapter 2. Most of what we know comes from chapter 2. Verse 40, and the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. Verse 52, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Boggles my mind to think that the eternal Son of God who created all things and rules over all things became a child and went through all the normal human development stages that you and I go through. He was an infant. Think of that. He was a toddler. He was an eight-year-old. He went through puberty. These are things that Jesus experienced just like you and me. And he learned. And that's, how does does an omniscient, omnipresent son of God submit himself to the process of learning? I don't know, and I'm not going to try to explain it to you this morning. But the scriptures are clear that he accepted in emptying all of his privileges and glory of heaven to come and, and become made like a servant among us He accepted the limitations of adding a human nature to his divine nature. 
That meant that he had to grow. He had to learn. He had to learn how to talk. He had to learn how to walk. He had to be confined in his human nature to time and space. He had to learn to be a carpenter. He had to learn to do everything from childhood to adulthood. And what that screams to us is that nobody, not an infant, not a toddler, not an eight-year-old, not a teenager, not a full-grown adult, none of us can say, you don't understand what I'm going through, Jesus. He's been through it all. Thirdly, what this virgin birth tells us is that Jesus had a fully human body, not only a fully human birth, but the body that he lived with while he was on earth and the body, the risen, resurrected body he has today was fully human. His body had all the needs that ours have and although Jesus never sinned, his body was affected by all the same consequences of sin that our bodies are affected by. Remember when, that's really the point of that temptation, the 40 days that Jesus spent in the wilderness, tempted by Satan, is that his body had the same needs that your body and my body has. It says that after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. In John 4, when he sat down at the well, and before he met the Samaritan woman, it said, Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. He was tired, physically worn out and thirsty as he sat at the well. In John 19, that makes you think of it, doesn't it? When he was on the cross and he cried out, I am thirsty. That wasn't a metaphor. He was literally, totally dehydrated. Had a physical need that we would have in the same circumstance. God the Son experienced all the physical sensations and needs and temptations that you and I face. It's important that we understand that. And after he died, it was the very same body that he lived in and and lived with during his earthly ministry. It was the very same body that he was raised with. The Gospels are very clear about that. Luke 24, when he met with his disciples after the resurrection, it says they were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And remember when he met with Thomas shortly after that. And he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Later with his disciples on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he ate bread and drank and and ate fish. He's fully human. Fully human with a full human physical body. As Paul says, both his body and our bodies And because of his resurrection, our bodies are sown in dishonor and raised in glory. Fourthly, Jesus also had a human soul. Sometimes we don't think about that part of it. It's easy for us to think he had a human body, but he had a human soul. He experienced all the same emotions, passions, desires, dreams that you and I experienced, but yet without sin. As hard as that is to imagine. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, it says, When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Remember how in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he prayed to the Father and wrestled with the, the, the mission that the Father had sent him on to redeem us, it says that Jesus said to his disciples, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow. His very human soul. In Mark 3, when he healed the man with a shriveled hand, it says he looked at the Pharisees in anger and deeply distressed 
by their stubborn hearts said to the man, stretch out your hand, and he stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. He was angry and deeply distressed by the unbelief and attitude of the Pharisees. And of course, how could you forget how he reacted at the tomb of Lazarus, where it says simply in John eleven thirty five, 35, Jesus wept. Think about how on the cross, he looked down and saw Mary, his mother, standing with John, the apostle. And in love, the love of a son, the very human love of a son, gave the care of his mother over into John's hands. He had a fully human soul, just like ours, except without sin. You see, this is where we get to the conclusion, knowing all this, because the virgin birth is true, what Paul says in Colossians 2 verse 9 also is true. In Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. You are not going to find a more awe-inspiring, more mysterious, more incomprehensible statement than that one. That in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. He is fully God and fully man. The whole gospel depends upon it, as we'll look at in a moment. In 451 AD, the Council of Chalcedon made this statement said that Jesus is truly God and truly man, two natures without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. One person, two natures. That's our Messiah. He didn't stop being God when he became fully man. He added a fully human nature, body and soul, to his divine nature. He veiled his glory in his flesh, as the carol says. In our own Westminster Shorter Catechism, it puts it this way. Jesus is God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. Christ, the Son of God, became man by taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary and born of her, yet without sin. Phil Riken in his commentary says, Only the virgin birth preserves both the humanity and the deity of Christ. And if Christ is not both fully God and fully man then you and I are lost. It's that simple. You see, that's the unique mercy and grace that was given to Mary, is that she was given the privilege of being an empty vessel to allow the Holy Spirit to cause the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, to dwell within her in a unique way that would lead to our salvation. That's all she was, was an empty vessel. That's all we are, are empty vessels. We are not going to be called to do what she did, but we're all called to do our part to complete the work that Christ began when he died on the cross. Phil Rikens goes on to say, the way Mary helps us is not by giving us grace, but by showing that God can give us the same kind of grace that he gave to her, by showing that God shows unmerited favor to lowly sinners. You see, Mary is nothing in and of herself, but she points us to the Redeemer, the one who is worthy. And so I want to conclude by just sharing a few thoughts from the book of Hebrews. Because the book of Hebrews expands upon this mystery as far as you can possibly go. As far as our puny human brains can handle it, the book of Hebrews is written to help us to try to grapple with this reality that Jesus was fully human. And what it tells us is that this is all about the covenant promise of God and that Jesus was our covenant representative. You see, Adam was our original covenant representative. 
He was our federal head. He was the one who represented us in the temptation in the garden, and he failed, and he sinned, and he rebelled, and was cast out of the presence of God. But praise God, he did not leave us all under Adam's sin, but he sent a second Adam, a second covenant representative, who was also tempted, but chose to obey and to continue to obey. And so as we fall in Adam, Paul says in Romans 5, we are saved in Christ, the one who obeyed. His obedience becomes our hope. And that's why Gabriel said to Mary, O favored one, the Lord is with you. That's the covenant promise. I will be your God, you will be my people. The Lord is with you, Emmanuel. That's what it means. It's the covenant promises. God is with you, Mary. And all like you put your faith in this Messiah. Secondly, he's not only worthy to be our covenant representative, he's worthy to be our priest, and we all need one. The Bible is clear from beginning to end that no sinner like you and me can approach a holy God without a mediator. And he is the one mediator that God has provided. 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. It used to bother me, it says the man, Christ Jesus. Why doesn't he say the God-man, Christ Jesus? Because he's not emphasizing his deity there. He's emphasizing the fact that he's our mediator because he was fully human. Because only a fully human person can represent us before God. He had to be fully man in order to be our great high priest. Because the high priest was a representative of God's people. That's why Hebrews chapter 2 says, For this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. And that brings me to the the, the next point, the third point, is he's not only worthy to be our covenant representative, worthy to be our priest, our great high priest, but he's worthy to be our very sacrifice. The sacrifice that redeems, that atones, that makes peace between us and God. Hebrews chapter 10, talking about the Old Testament sacrifices of bulls and goats and and calves, those sacrifices, says, are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Only the sins of a perfect man can pay for the sins of another. And only the sins of a perfect man who is also the eternal son of God would be worthy to pay for the sins of all of God's people in every age, in every era, at every time, in every generation. And that was the blood that was shed that brought about atonement, that brought peace between us as sinners and a holy God. As Hebrews chapter 7 puts it, verse 27, he has no need, Jesus Christ has no need like those high priests, the Old Testament priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. And that brings me to the final point, that having adequately, fully, sufficiently met the requirements to be the one mediator who can make peace between us and God because of the perfect sacrifice of his blood that he offered in our place, he does not leave us there, but he becomes our high priest who is our great help. He is worthy to be the one who helps us to become what God has redeemed us to be. Hebrews chapter 2, let me read a few verses from Hebrews 2, beginning in verse 14. Since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. 
Having shed his blood, he delivered us from the power of death and the power of Satan himself. We are no longer under slavery to sin because of what he did for us. He is our adequate help. Then he goes on and say in verse 18, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And then he expands upon that thought over in chapter 4. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who was in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help time in time of need. You see, Christ is the one who dispenses grace. He is the one that we go to that we might meet with God, that we might be accepted. He is our help. He can help us overcome sin for two reasons. Because he's been there, he knows it, he understands it, he understands us. He's been everywhere we've been. He's faced every temptation we've faced. But more than that, because of his his atonement, because of his redemption, because of the cross, he has the power to deliver us from that sin. He is our help. As I was thinking about this this week, I was reminded of many years ago when I was doing prison ministry. I used to go in once a week on Thursday nights to lead a Bible study. And it was always like going through a gauntlet to get into the cell block where the prisoners were so that I could meet in a secure classroom with them to lead them in a Bible study. But one time, I I went through that entire gauntlet, went through like the 12 doors you have to go through that lock, clang shut behind you and lock behind you and all the the dozens of guards you walk by to get into the inner sanctum of this cell block where you can actually do the Bible study with the, the prisoners. I got in there, and I, I, and I went into the classroom as usual, and I got set up, and I was waiting for the guards to bring the prisoners down, which they always did. Waited 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, half an hour, and nobody came. And I started, I mean, I wondered for a while, but then I started to get almost fearful. I mean, just a really sick feeling in my gut, like, I went to the door, and usually I could see the, the booth where the guards were. I could try to wave and say, hey, I'm, nobody's coming. I'm stuck here. What's going on? I had no means of communicating with anybody, but usually there's guards. They weren't there. And I can't I tell you, one of the scariest moments of my life that I realized I'm locked in the very center of this prison behind 12 different big doors with nobody to deliver me. I'm totally helpless, totally stuck there. They didn't come for well over an hour. And I found out then that there had been an incident on the cell block and they had a lockdown and the guards were busy and they forgot I was in the classroom. (laughs) But you know what that experience did for me? Helped me to understand prisoners better. Because they live with that every day. That helplessness. Not being able to get outside the walls. Being totally under the power of others. I experienced, I tasted of it. Just for a moment. They live with it every day. It helped me to continue to minister to them in the future. You see, I was incarcerated for just a moment like a prisoner. But better put, theologically, I was incarnated as a prisoner for just a little while. That reminds me, you know, Christ understands us. He's our great high priest who's been everywhere we've been. But then he also, having understood us, has the power to deliver us from any temptation. Let me close with this quote from C.S. Lewis, my favorite quote from Mere Christianity, one of my favorite books. I've quoted this many times because it's been so helpful to me from the first moment I knew Christ. This is what he said. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. 
After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in to it. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside of us until we try to fight it. And here's the kicker. This is the most important part. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. No matter how far you've gone in the battle against sin in your life, Christ has already been there, and he's been a lot farther. Not only does he know and understand, being fully God and fully man, but because of his redemption, because of his atonement, because of his work at the cross, he has delivered you from the power of sin. He has made you clean in the sight of a holy God. And you will live forever if you live by faith in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gospel. As we now prepare to come to the table, let our focus be upon Christ, our Redeemer, our great high priest. Lord, thank you that Mary responded in obedience. May we also respond in obedience. And like Mary, may we look to you to be filled with grace and the presence of the Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.